Well, that's an appropriate song for us to sing before we re-enter our study of the book of Romans, particularly Romans chapter 6. If you have your Bibles with you today, please turn there with me, Romans chapter 6, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7 this morning, and that line that we just sang that Christ broke the chains or the bonds of sin. And that's what we're going to learn about this morning as we uh, get back into the study of this uh, magnificent epistle that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Paul writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Father, what a magnificent truth Paul explained in this passage, and how appropriate that we would come to this passage in your sweet providence on the day that we have our baptism service. I can't think of a more appropriate text to talk about in preparation for what we're about to witness together. And so I pray, Father, as there's a lot of deep theology in these verses that your spirit would grant us understanding, that we would be able to see what Paul meant by what he said here, and that you would also help us to see how it applies to our lives today. And so we ask for your help now. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, before the television was invented, one of the most popular forms of entertainment was radio drama. Some of you that are older in our midst, I'm not including myself, although I'm getting up there, um, will remember this when families would gather around the radio in their kitchens or in the living room and listen to stories dramatized through dialogue and music and sound effects in order to help uh, the listener imagine the characters and the events Uh, in the story. Well, today there are very few radio dramas being produced, and in America, most old-time radio is restricted to rebroadcast or podcast uh, programs from previous decades, but there is one award-winning show still being made, which is the longest-running radio drama in history. I'm curious if anyone might know what I'm talking about. It's called Unshackled, and I'm sure uh, some of you have heard these 30-minute episodes by Pacific Garden Mission in Chicago, which always begin with a brief summary of someone's testimony and climaxes with the same classic line, 
when their heart and mind and life were unshackled. And it has the dramatic organ music. Dun, dun, dun. Well, as a kid, I remember being mesmerized by these gripping real-life accounts of how God radically saved and transformed people who were hopelessly trapped in some type of sin or sinful lifestyle. And the Bible says that every one of us is a slave to sin. We are all shackled by our sinful thoughts and sinful desires and sinful choices and sinful, sinful motives, but there is someone who can set us free from sin. That someone is, of course, God's son, Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus said himself in John 8, verse 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is the slave of sin. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. How did the Son set us free? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us, he says, Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Christ, likewise also partook of the same. In other words, he became a man like us, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. And so we know that the Bible says that Jesus came down from heaven to live and die and rise again in our place so that we could be delivered from bondage to sin. And if we willingly admit that we're slaves to sin, who deserve to die and go to hell, but at the same time, we wholeheartedly believe that Jesus died in our place to pay the punishment for our sin, we can be both forgiven for our sin, but also freed from our sin. And this is the glorious truth of the gospel that Paul explained in his letter to the Christians in Rome. For those of you that are visiting with us this morning or maybe newer to our church, you need to understand that Romans is Paul's magnum opus, his greatest work under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It is the clearest, fullest, most systematic presentation of the gospel in all of scripture. And it really serves as the doctrinal foundation for the entire Bible. No other portion of God's word is more important for us as Christians to understand and apply than the book of Romans. Now I realize that it's been almost six months since we left off in our study of Romans at the end of chapter five. It was back at the end of May of this year. And it's also been over a year since we began our study, which was back in October of 2000. Uh, what, what year are we in? I guess it was 2017. We're in 18 now, right? It was 2017, October. Um, and that's when we began our study. So obviously, some kind of re- review would be appropriate um, at this point. In fact, someone mentioned to me last week that I better get back to preaching through Romans because they're already starting to forget everything I already taught so far. Well, as I was thinking through how to best review all that we have learned together over the months um, in chapters one through five, I thought rather than have you listen to me just regurgitate 
what I already said about who wrote Romans and who it was written to and why it was written, I thought it would be much more enjoyable and engaging for you to watch a creative overview of the book of Romans developed by a ministry called The Bible Project. I'm not sure uh, how many of you are familiar with The Bible Project, but it's a ministry that has produced animated summaries of every book of the New Testament and almost every book of the Old Testament. And so I want us to watch this seven-minute video just for for two reasons, okay? Number one, it's going to provide a much-needed review of what we've already learned uh, so far in our study of Romans, but it also will introduce you to a ministry that I believe you'll find very useful in your own personal study of God's Word. And so let's watch the Bible Project's overview of the first half of the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans, it's one of the longest and most significant things ever written by the man who was formerly known as Saul of Tarsus. He was a Jewish rabbi belonging to a group known as the Pharisees, and he was passionate and devout to the Torah of Moses and the traditions of Israel. And he saw Jesus and his followers as a threat. But then he had a radical encounter with the risen Jesus, who commissioned him as an apostle, like an official representative, to the world of non-Jewish people called Gentiles in the Bible. And so he started going by his Roman name, Paul, and he traveled all around the ancient Roman Empire telling people about the risen King Jesus and forming his followers then into these new communities called churches. And Paul would occasionally write letters to these new Jesus communities to help them foster their faith or answer questions. And the book of Romans is one of these. It was actually written quite late in his career. Now, we know from the book of Acts that the church in Rome had existed for some time, that it was made up of Jewish and non-Jewish followers of Jesus. But at one point, the Roman emperor Claudius had expelled all of the Jewish people from Rome. And then about five years later, all of those Jews, including Jesus-following Jews, were allowed to return. And when they did, they found a church that had become very non-Jewish in custom and practice. And so this created lots of tension, so that by Paul's day, the Roman church was was divided. People disagreed about how to follow Jesus. They were debating about whether non-Jewish Christians should celebrate the Sabbath or eat kosher or be circumcised. And so Paul wrote this letter to accomplish a few things. He wanted this divided church to become unified and for a practical purpose. He was hoping that the Roman church could become a staging ground for his mission to go even further west all the way to Spain. And so these circumstances are what motivated Paul to write out his fullest explanation of the gospel, the good news that he was announcing about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Now, the letter is designed to have four main movements, but it's unified as one long-flowing exploration of the gospel. The gospel, Paul says, first of all, reveals God's righteousness, and then it also creates a new humanity, which fulfills God's promise to Israel. And so it's this gospel that's going to unify the church. In this video, we're just going to explore the ideas in chapters 1 through 4. So Paul opens by introducing himself as an apostle appointed by God to spread the gospel about Jesus, how he's the Messiah of Israel who was raised from the dead as the Son of God, King of the nations. And Jesus now calls all humanity to come under his loving rule. And Paul says this good news about King Jesus is, first of all, God's power to save people who trust in him, and second, that it reveals God's righteousness. Now, 
Righteousness is a rich Old Testament word for Paul. It describes God's character, that he always does justice, what is right and what is good, but also that he is faithful and just to fulfill his promises. And Paul's saying that the story of Jesus shows how God has done both of these things. How? Well, he goes first into a long creative retelling of Genesis chapters 3 through 11. He shows how all the Gentile world, all the nations, have become trapped in the spiral of sin and selfishness. The human heart and mind are broken, Paul says. We've turned away from God to embrace idolatry, which means finding ultimate significance in created things and then giving ultimate allegiance to these things that are not God. This results in a distortion of our humanity and destructive behavior. And so what's left is a humanity that stands guilty as charged before a just and righteous God. To which the people of Israel might say, well, it's a good thing then that God chose our people out from among the nations. He saved us out of slavery in Egypt. He gave us the laws of the Torah, like the Sabbath and eating kosher and circumcision. And these all together show us how to live as God's holy people. But, Paul says, not so fast. He recalls the storyline of the Torah and of the rest of the Old Testament, which shows that Israel was just as sinful and idolatrous and morally broken as the rest of humanity. Israel is actually more guilty than the Gentiles, Paul says, because they have the Torah. They should know better. And so, Paul concludes, all humanity, Gentiles, Israelites, are hopelessly trapped and guilty before God. But that is not the final word. The good news about Jesus is God's response. Instead of holding humanity guilty, Jesus came as Israel's Messiah to die on behalf of all people as a sacrifice for sins. As our representative, Jesus took into himself all of the just consequences of the pain, the sin, and the death that we have caused in the world. And he overcame it all by his resurrection from the dead. It's his new resurrection life that he makes available to others. Jesus became what we are so that we might become what he is. And all of this, Paul says, is how God justifies those who trust or have faith in Jesus. Now, justification is another rich Old Testament term for Paul, and it's related to God's righteousness. It literally means to declare righteous. Because of what Jesus did on our behalf, we are given a new status before God. Instead of finding us guilty, God declares that a person is in a right relationship with him and is forgiven. Justification results in a new family. The person who trusts in Jesus is given a place among God's covenant people. Justification also results in a new future, which begins a journey of life transformation by God's grace. And so all of these things about justification are God's gift to those who through their faith are in Christ. And so this leads Paul in chapter 4 to explore the huge implications that all of this has for who can be a part of God's covenant family. He goes back to the story of Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. Before any of the laws of the Torah were given to Israel, Abraham was justified or declared righteous before God. How? Well, God promised that Abraham would become a father of a large multi-ethnic family that would receive God's blessing. But he and his wife Sarah, they were really old. They had never been able to have children. But nonetheless, Abraham had radical faith and trust in God's promise. And so God declared him to be righteous. 
And so Paul says, now Abraham has become the father of God's new covenant family, and it's spreading all around the world. It's made up of Jews and Gentiles who have the same kind of faith and trust in the one who fulfilled God's promise to Abraham, Jesus the Messiah. So let's pause and summarize Paul's main ideas here in chapters 1 through 4 because they're the foundation for understanding the rest of the letter. All humanity is hopelessly trapped in sin and needs to be rescued. That rescue, however, is not going to happen by people trying to obey the laws of the Torah. Rather, God's righteous character has moved him to rescue the world through Jesus' death and resurrection so that he could create that multi-ethnic family of Abraham based on faith as his own new covenant people. And so Paul's going to go on to show how this new family is a part of something much, much bigger that calls them to a whole new way of life together. But it's all going to be rooted in these core ideas explored in chapters 1 through 4 of Paul's letter to the Romans. How many of you, is that the first time you've seen anything from the Bible Project? Pretty cool, huh? And uh, they have their own website. Uh, you can also view any of these on uh, YouTube. But uh, again, if you're ever interested in studying a book of the Bible and you want to kind of get a good, quick overview of, of what that book's all about, uh, I would encourage you to uh, go on the Bible Project and, and, and check out what they have to say. Well, the main point of Romans uh, is summarized in chapter 3. And uh, I want to reread this portion because, again, I want us to remember that this is the heart and the soul of this letter, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. Here we have Paul's uh, clear explanation of justification by faith alone. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, the subtitle I chose for our series is based on this passage, uh, how a gracious God makes guilty sinners right with him through faith in Jesus. So you see that up there. The main title, The Glorious Gospel, is based on a verse uh, in another one of Paul's letters. It's 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11, where Paul said, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Uh, the uh, English Standard Version says this, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The point being this, that ultimately the gospel is all about the glory of God. In other words, God's plan of salvation puts all of his attributes on glorious display so that he receives praise and honor for his wisdom, his wrath, his justice, his love, his grace, his power, his goodness, his faithfulness, but particularly his righteousness. God's righteousness 
is the one attribute of God that Paul chose to highlight above all the rest of his attributes in his letter to the Romans. And um, how I said it earlier was this, that Romans is all about how everyone is a sinner who has fallen short of God's standard of righteousness and deserves God's wrath, but God, in his grace and mercy, gives his righteousness to everyone who forsakes trying to get right with him by their own good works and instead trusts in the work that he has done for them through the life and death of his son Jesus for their salvation, by which he declares them righteous and ultimately results in them living a righteous life befitting one who has been freely and mercifully rescued from sin, death, and hell. Now, that was a long statement, but it really is fleshed out in our little outline, and I put one of those in your bulletin. Hopefully, you grab that and are looking at that just to kind of bring you up to speed. But this is how I chose to outline uh, the book of Romans. It, It basically breaks down into two sections. We see the gospel explained in chapters 1 through 11, and we see the gospel applied in verses 12 through 16. And so we're in the doctrinal section, and we will be all the way up until chapter 11, uh, and then we'll be in the practical section in chapters 12 through 16. Notice the emphasis in the main points on righteousness, that uh, chapters 1 through 3, verse 20, are about the lack of righteousness, And that's why we're condemned uh, by God and deserve to die and go to hell. But then in chapters 3, verse 21 and following to the end of chapter 5 is what I just uh, read to you is the gift of righteousness, our justification. And now we transition from uh, condemnation to justification and now to sanctification, which is the result of righteousness in chapter 6. 7 and 8. Now, in in the first five chapters, Paul explained and illustrated how salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, in the next three chapters, again, chapter 6, 7, and 8, he explained and illustrated the practical ramifications or implications of that salvation. In other words, when we were saved, we were not only delivered from the penalty of sin, death and hell, But we are also delivered from the power of sin. And that's very practical for us as we live our Christian lives on a daily basis. God doesn't just forensically credit his righteousness to our account. That's what we learned uh, is referred to as the doctrine of imputation. Uh, He doesn't just, and it was more of a legal act where he declares us righteous. So he doesn't just forensically credit his righteousness to our account. But he actually creates or produces his righteousness in us so that we can live righteously. And that's what we know as the doctrine of sanctification. A way to say it um, another way would be, he not only considers us righteous in his eyes, but he also conforms us to his righteousness in our everyday lives. And so it's critical for us to understand the difference between our heavenly position and our earthly practice, our spiritual standing in Christ, and our practical living as a Christian. And there's a vital connection between our justification and our sanctification. Now, if you're not familiar with those terms, um, I think a a quick overview of the doctrine of salvation um, would be helpful. 
Because when we talk about getting saved, right, we're talking about becoming a Christian, we, we typically just think about one aspect of that salvation. It's, it's our justification, when re- actually salvation includes three distinct phases or aspects. There's a past aspect, there's a present aspect, and there's a future aspect of our salvation. And they're referred to as justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification is a one-time event that occurs at the moment of our conversion, when God applies the substitutionary work of Christ to our account and forgives our sin and declares us righteous or blameless before him. The Bible says that we have been justified. That's the past aspect or phase of salvation. Then there's sanctification. Sanctification is the gradual, ongoing process that begins the moment after we're justified, whereby the Spirit of God sets us apart from sin and grows us and matures us and conforms us more into the image of Christ. The Bible talks about how we are being sanctified. That's the present aspect of our salvation. And then thirdly, there's glorification, which is the final act that God will accomplish in our lives the moment that we die or when Jesus returns, whereby all of our sin will be permanently removed and we will be perfectly conformed to Christ for all eternity. The Bible talks about how someday we will be glorified. This is the future phase or future aspect of our salvation. Now, we need to go a little bit deeper still. We need to zero in further on what the Bible says about that second phase, that present stage of sanctification. And even in that phase, there's a past, present, and future aspect as well. Because sanctification can be divided into three categories. There's, first of all, positional sanctification, which means that we are instantaneously set apart from sin unto God at the same exact moment that we're justified. We're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, um, the holiness of Christ, and that's why we are considered saints, even though sometimes we ain't, right? Uh, We don't act like saints all the time, but in God's eyes, we are saints. That's positional sanctification. But then there's progressive sanctification. That's probably the sanctification that we're most familiar with, and that is when we are, or how we are increasingly set apart from sin as we flee from it, as we fight to subdue and mortify it, we're practically becoming more and more like Christ in our everyday lives. And then there's perfect sanctification, and that is when we're finally set apart from sin in the moment that we see Jesus at our death or the rapture, and we are forever separated from sin and all its negative effects. Now, I know that was a lot of theology just kind of shot at you all at once, but this, this three-dimensional nature of both salvation in general and sanctification in specific must be clearly understood. And Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8, I think, may be the most helpful chapters in the entire New Testament to gain a clear understanding of this subject of sanctification. If you were to go back to your little outline there, a roadmap for Romans, you notice how I outline these three chapters. Chapter 6 is all about liberation from sin. Chapter 7 is frustration with sin. And chapter 8 is mortification of sin. So you see that the main focus of these chapters is a believer's relationship with sin. In other words, their relationship 
with sin has changed. There's something different. And what Paul says here in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, serves as the foundation of God's progressive work of sanctification in our lives. In other words, what makes sanctification possible? What makes it possible for us to sin less and less and become more and more like Christ? What is it? It's the fact that we are no longer, what? Slaves to sin. Our liberation from sin is the direct result of our identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, which occurs when we get saved and is best illustrated when we get baptized. Now, time out. Baptism does not save us. It merely symbolizes what happened to us when we got saved. And since today we will be observing the ordinance of baptism together, I thought it would be appropriate for us to focus in on, particularly verses 3 and 4, to see how baptism by immersion beautifully and powerfully illustrates the spiritual realities that a person experiences the moment they become a Christian. Well, before we look at those verses, we need to look at the verses that come right before it so that we can understand why Paul said what he said. And so look at verses 1 and 2. Paul asks a rhetorical question, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now you may remember that Paul wrote this letter like he was having an imaginary debate with an invisible opponent. And so he would, from time to time, ask and answer questions or objections that he knew that his words would raise in his readers' minds. And so every so often, he impersonates a heckler in the crowd. Somebody that's like, hey, wait a minute, Paul, if, you, if that's true, then what about this? And at this point, Paul anticipated what he had just written about God's superabounding grace in the previous chapter, would raise a very critical question in the minds of particularly the Jewish audience that he was writing to. Notice what he said in chapter 5, verse 20. He said, the law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul knew that if his readers really grasped what he was saying, when he made that statement, that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, they would naturally wonder what would keep a person from going hog wild into sin so that they could experience even more of God's grace. And so he asks the question, are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? In other words, if if the grace of God is at its best when sin is at its worst, then why wouldn't I just go on sinning? Since the more I sin, the more grace God shows me, and the more grace God shows me, the more glory he gets for being such a gracious God. And so, in fact, the more I sin, the more glory God gets. Hopefully, 
Hopefully that sounds crazy to your ears because it did to Paul's. He had already alluded to this criticism that by preaching justification based solely on the free grace of God, he was encouraging people to sin. If you remember back in chapter 3, verse 8, he says, And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come? In other words, if I'm not saved by living a righteous life, then why should I bother living a righteous life now? It can't make me any more saved than I already am. Besides, I've got a place already locked up in heaven so I can live any way I want. I can't lose my salvation. Sounds more like the false teachers in Jude 4, where Jude says, ungodly persons who turn the grace of their God into licentiousness. In other words, they turn their, 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 the grace of God into a license to sin. Well, how does Paul react? Notice in verse 2, he says, May it never be. In the Greek, meganoita. This is the strongest possible way in the Greek language to refute a statement. And it can, contains a, a sense of outrage that anyone could ever think this is true. I mean, this, is, this, this phrase, may it never be, can be translated in a number of ways. Absolutely not. Perish the blasphemous thought. God forbid, not on your life, not in a million years. That's totally ridiculous. Are you insane? That's essentially what he was saying. And Paul used this negative exclamation ten times in this letter. We already saw it three times in chapter three, and we're going to see it six more times here, even in this chapter and all the way through chapter 11. What was Paul's point here in asking or posing this question? He wanted his readers to know that God's grace not only justifies us, but it also, what? Sanctifies us. God didn't save us just to keep us out of hell, but to make us holy and conform us to the image of his son. He's going to say that very specifically in chapter 8, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. So salvation is way more than just a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's about becoming like Jesus. And so God pours out his grace upon us to deliver us from sin, not so we can continue to live in sin or even to go deeper into sin. That'd be crazy. See, his grace provides us freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. And so he answers the critic's question or supposed critic's question with a question. Kind of like Jesus, right? Answer a question with a question. Notice he says in verse 2, How shall we who died to sin still live in it? By the way, the tense that this is stated in the Greek signifies a one-time event that was completed in the past. In other words, we have died to sin. It's already happened. And that happened when we became a Christian. When we became a Christian, we died to sin. We were set free from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, and one day, we will even be set free from the presence of sin, and that's in heaven. 
And so no longer does sin have dominion over us. Sin no longer controls us, is his point. And so this fundamental premise that Paul established here is not that a Christian should not keep sinning, but that a Christian cannot keep sinning or living under sin's dominion or control. That's a very important concept, and I want to say that again. What Paul is saying here is not that a Christian should not keep sinning. You should, hey, you guys got to quit it. Stop it. No, he's saying you cannot keep sinning or living under sin's dominion or control. Let me explain what he meant by that. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? What does it mean to live in sin? I think it simply means that your life is characterized by sin. You have sinful habits. You're like, oh shoot, I've got sinful habits. Maybe I'm not saved. No, listen to the definition here of what it means to live in sin. You have sinful habits that you are unwilling or unable to break. You have no desire or plans to change the areas of your life that you know are disobedient or displeasing to the Lord. If that describes the pattern of your life, then you are probably not a Christian because apparently you have never died to sin. And I think the the question of the ages is this. Can someone who has been truly born again and become a child of God continue to live as if they were a child of Satan? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Can someone who has been truly born again and become a child of God continue to live as if they were a child of Satan? Well, according to 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, the answer is no. Turn with me there for a second. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. The apostle John, one of the followers of Christ, the disciples of Christ, lays this out very clearly for us in his first letter, 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. You know that he appears, or he appeared, Christ, in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. I think the key word in this passage is the word that was repeated more than any other word, and it's the word what? Practice. What does it mean to practice something? If you're an athlete and you go to practice, what does that mean? What are you doing at practice? 
you're doing stuff over and over and over again. You're going, doing your layup drills. You're doing your free throw shots. You're doing whatever, uh, your, your corner kicks, right? Uh, you're doing something over and over and over again. It's talking about a habitual pattern of life. Now, reading that, I think it's important to say this, that obviously this doesn't mean that Christians are sinless because that would contradict, that's not what John was saying, that would contradict the rest of Scripture. Or that Christians can't fall back into old sinful habits. Again, that would contradict all that the the Bible says says about avoiding or resisting or fighting against sin and temptation. Apparently, there's still the draw to sin and the potential to sin. But I think the point of this passage in 1 John is that the mark of a genuine Christian is not that they never sin, but they see a decreasing frequency of sin in their life. In other words, they they can honestly say that they're sinning less than they used to before they were saved. Now, the paradox of that, at least this is what I've experienced in my life, the closer you get to the Lord, the more sinful it seems that you are. And so you think, man, I I am such a sinner. In fact, you recognize so much more. You're far more sensitive to your sin now as you get closer and closer to Christ And as that spotlight of his holiness, you get closer and closer to it, you can see a lot more of your imperfections. When you were far away from the Lord as a baby Christian, you maybe didn't see all these things in your life. So there's a paradox there. So be careful. Don't think, well, I feel like a greater sinner today than I was before. That's a good thing. If if it's an evidence that you're being more sensitive to your sin and you're taking your sin more seriously. I think the point that John was making, the point that Paul was making back in Romans is anyone who claims to be a Christian but continues to live in an unrepentant, habitual pattern of sin is a contradiction. S. Lewis Johnson, who formerly taught at the the Dallas Seminary, pastored the Believer's Chapel, a great church up in the Dallas area for years, a tremendous Bible teacher, one of the most faithful expositors of Scripture who has ever lived in our modern time. This is what he said, quote, if a man lives in sin, he is not a believer. Pretty blunt, right? If a man lives in sin, he is not a believer. He said the entire chapter, talking about Romans chapter 6, argues for the doctrine that a believer cannot persist in sin as the bent of his life. Justification is incompatible with non-sanctification. You say, what does that mean? Well, he was simply saying, you cannot be saved and not be sanctified. In other words, if you are saved, you will be sanctified. It's a package deal. Remember what we said? Salvation, break it down into three categories, justification, sanctification, but it's a package deal. Can't have one without the other. And so with that as our background, let's look at verses three and four. He says, or 
Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? So Paul went on to explain that we died to sin at the moment we were baptized into Christ. You say, well, when did I die? It says I died. If I did, when did that happen? Well, it says when we were baptized into Christ's death. Now, some commentators say that Paul was referring here in verses 3 and 4 to water baptism. I appreciated one commentator who said, uh, famously said, uh, I, I hope we can make it through Romans chapter 6 without getting wet. In other words, he didn't agree with that interpretation. Because if this was water baptism that Paul was referring to, then that would imply that a person is saved when they get baptized, which contradicts what Paul had already taught about salvation being by faith and not by works. And I think instead of seeing this as a literal reference to water baptism, I think it's better to interpret this as a metaphorical reference to spirit baptism, which is symbolized by water baptism. And the reason why I say that is because I think in this context, Paul was clearly speaking figuratively or spiritually rather than literally. We were not literally crucified with Christ or literally buried with Christ or literally resurrected with Christ. Those are figurative thoughts. Those are spiritual realities. And so I think this is talking about spirit baptism. Mark chapter 1, verse 8 John said, John the Baptist, I baptize you with water, but he, Christ, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, by one spirit we are all baptized into one body. That's what we're talking about by spirit baptism. That when a person is saved, they're instantly baptized by the Holy Spirit, which means they're placed or immersed into Christ and his body. They're incorporated into Christ. They're identified with Christ. And Paul used the same concept to talk about how the people of Israel were identified or united with their leader Moses. In 1 Corinthians 10, 1 Corinthians 10 2, he said, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. This was all the Israelites as they were coming out of Egypt, and Moses was their leader. And, and, and Paul said that they were baptized or identified or united with Moses during that time of Exodus. And so, in the same way, when we became a Christian, we identified or are united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Look at verse 5. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Again, notice you can't have one without the other. It's not like you could have just um, um, been united with him in his death, but not his resurrection. No, it's a package deal. that You've you, you got to have both. They go together. They're like two sides of the same coin. I think Paul's point here is that Christ died not only as our substitute, but also as our representative. He died for us, but he also died, don't miss this, as us. And as we learned back in Romans chapter 5... I know that was a while ago, but Adam, when he sinned in the garden, sinned what? As us. 
And in the same way we sinned with Adam in the garden, we also died on the cross with Christ. We were buried in the tomb with Christ. We were raised from the dead with Christ. In other words, our spiritual union with Christ implies that we participated in all that he experienced in a spiritual sense. When he died, we died. When he was buried, we were buried. When when he rose, we rose. And all these profound spiritual realities are wonderfully portrayed in water baptism, which is simply an illustration of the radical transformation that occurred when we got saved. And we're about to watch five people get baptized, and what's going to happen after they share their testimony is we're going to say, we now baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we're going to put them back into the water like this, right, which is symbol, symbolic of the fact that they have, what, died with Christ, and they go under the water, they've been buried with Christ, and then they come out of the water, what, to represent the resurrection, that they've been raised with Christ. And that's what Paul says in verse 5, therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. God put on display all of his glorious attributes in raising Christ from the dead, particularly his strength and his power. Like it says in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 19, that he rose him from, raised him from the dead by his power. But notice what he says. So we too might walk in what? Newness of life. Based on our union with Christ, we died to our former way of life. And now we have a new quality or character to our life, which inevitably leads to a new way of living. We act differently than we used to act because we're not the same person we used to be. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. William MacDonald, in his very helpful one-volume commentary uh, called uh, uh, The Believer's Commentary, a great a great book you should, all should have on your shelf, just a quick reference to every passage in, in, in the Bible. He said this, quote, there is a sense in which a believer attends the funeral of his old self when he's baptized. I don't know if you ever thought of a baptism service as being a funeral, but that's essentially what's going on, right? You're, you're witnessing the, the death of an old man, again, figuratively, metaphorically, spiritually speaking. As he goes under the water, he's saying, all that I was as sinful as a sinful son of Adam was put to death at the cross. And as he comes up out of the water, he's saying, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I love that Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Notice quickly as we wrap up here, verse 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. He begins to be, Paul's getting a little more specific here, talking about what does this look like, this being crucified with Christ or dying with Christ. He's talking about that, that old self, our old unregenerate self with all of our old habits and carnal desires, basically who we were before we were saved. 
And I don't have time to get into it this morning. Maybe we'll jump on it next week. But we need to understand that there are not two natures warring within us. An old nature and a, a, a new nature. We have one new nature that's still incarcerated in unredeemed flesh that has been conditioned to sin over time. In other words, we've gotten really good at sinning, right? And, that, and so we still have the propensity to sin. And so he says, knowing this, our old self was crucified in order that our body of sin might be done away with. Again, I don't think this is a reference to our physical body, but the sin that remains in us. The, we, we, we refer to it as indwelling sin. But when we're crucified with Christ, that remaining sin, that indwelling sin is rendered or was rendered powerless or inoperative. In other words, again, it no longer controls us or has power over us. We have been released from sin's stranglehold in our lives. Notice how he concludes verse 6, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. He mentions that same thing in verse 17, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, now he's saying, hey, you're no longer slaves to sin. We used to be under sin's power and control. We had to do what sin told us to do. We had no choice but to obey. Sin was our master. But notice, he says, you're no longer slaves to sin. Verse 7, for he who has died, again, died to sin. He's going back to verse 2. How shall he who died to sin still live? Listen, if you have died, you are freed from sin. We are no longer under sin's power. We are no longer under sin's control. Sin is no longer our master. We don't have to do what it tells us to do. We can choose not to sin. Listen, don't miss this. You don't have to sin anymore. You say, well, why do I keep doing it then? Well, because you choose to, but you don't have to. See, the point is, Paul was not saying that we don't still have the capacity to sin, but we're no longer under captivity to sin. We can look our old master straight in the eye and ignore every command he gives and even turn and walk away. And again, the whole reason Christ died was to free us from both the penalty of sin and the power of sin. I love what Paul said in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. And verse 13, for you were called to freedom. Notice it doesn't say you were called to get out of hell. Or it was for fire insurance that Christ set you free. No. It was for freedom. Not just from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin. One of my favorite hymns, I'm sure is a favorite of many of you as well, Charles Wesley's classic, And Can It Be? 
And let me just close by reading what I think is the most profound verse. It goes like this. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That is the testimony of every person whose heart and mind and life were unshackled. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for this complicated but clear passage about our freedom from sin. What an amazing truth. Lord, I pray that you would help us to fully grasp the reality that we no longer have to sin. We don't have to sin anymore. What a glorious truth because there was a time in our lives when we had no choice but to sin. And so would you grant us a desire to apply that freedom that you have blessed us with in Christ and that you would help us even this week to sin less than we did last week and to obey and honor our new master, Jesus, even more. We pray this in his name. Amen.